This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. And now we'd like to welcome you to Bite Into It with Joe and Vanessa. Hello. Hey, Joe. How are you? I'm good. How are you? Good. Very nice and cosy in the studio tonight. We hope you're keeping warm out there with those gales blowing. And um, maybe we're accompanying your trip home or you're just getting stuck into some early dinner. I hope that you're all comfy out there. Tonight, we are looking forward to chatting to a data analyst all about what that career entails and um, how to get into it and what's going on in the in the world of data analyst jobs. So that's coming up a little bit later. We're also going to hear a review of the Samsung Odyssey. So if you're into VR experiences at the consumer grade level, then you'll want to stay tuned for that. I know I'm really curious about what we might be having in our spaces at home in the near future now if we could afford it that uh that sounds pretty cool so in news this week uh launch vic have just announced today a range of new funding aimed at supporting local council startup communities this included startup ballarat receiving two hundred and eighty four thousand dollars from launch vic um part of what they're going to do with that is run startup ballarat exclamation point which is a program of meetups, hackathons, masterclasses and co-working trials. It's really awesome to see all of this work being done around startups uh, in regional communities, not just in Melbourne City. So that's kind of cool. There's a whole lot of other um, local councils involved in the recent round of funding from LaunchVic uh, and you can explore it all on their website. Uh, and LaunchVic's, you know, goal is really to be Victoria's startup agency established by the Victorian government in March 2016. Um, they're an independent agency responsible for developing our startup ecosystem. So it's kind of great work that they're doing and we'll be really excited to see what uh, talent and what great ideas emerge out of our local communities. Joe, what else is happening in the world? So the BBC are reporting that Google have confirmed that what people assume to be private emails sent through their Gmail service can sometimes be read by third-party app developers and not just machine-read, so it's people who've connected third-party apps to their account who've unwittingly given permission for humans who work for these apps to read their messages. And it's something that's asked for and granted by users when connecting these services. It says access to read, send, delete and manage your email. But people, A, don't often read these things and B, probably assume that this means machine read rather than by humans. Mm. So Google says these companies have had to be vetted before their apps can use the Google account ecosystem. Mm. But... Um, They've also said that you can visit your security checkout page in Gmail and see which apps you've linked to your account and then revoke access if you no longer want to share data. So it's not like they're not going to let this continue. It's just that they're asking you to be aware and manage your own It is a bit access. of a shock. Yeah, I think so too. Yeah, I am not comfortable with that at all. Um what did make me feel better is, as far as I could tell with the articles I've read so far about it, and this story is still breaking, um, is that the sorts of apps that were getting these permissions were doing so to advertise to you and target you better, but also tended to be the sort of apps that I wouldn't have downloaded. Yeah. So they were the sort of things that might enhance the 
uh, the font options that you had to use in your emails on your on your machine or something like that. And they said it was things like price comparison and travel, um, things that scrape your email for travel um, itineraries and tickets and things like that. Mm. I don't mind the scraping so much if you've allowed it, if you thought that there was a trade-off for what you were getting from the app. But this human red thing is really not okay. That's iffy. Yeah, yeah. it's pretty bad. Um, hopefully we'll see some emerging responses from Google uh, after people react to this news because I think they may have underestimated how seriously people feel about this. It, it doesn't feel nice. No, it's not great. In something that's a little bit cooler, um, BMW i have been developing a wireless car charger because cars that are powered by sources that are other than, um, you know, black petrol uh, a really interesting uh, space at the moment yeah BW- BMWI are one of the groups who are trying to make battery charging a little bit more convenient and so it's a bit like going from the early days of mobile phones where we have everything's a plug-in charger to nowadays you've got these pads that you can maybe rest your gear on and it's wireless charging so they're like why can't we do that for your car it's so you is, drive onto a pad yeah it's hilarious you kind of drive into this drive onto this thing that looks like an enormous trackpad. But no, it's it's to charge your car's battery and you just think, well, that looks really great. Has to be better than petrol. Well, it's better than having to hop out of your vehicle to, to you know, put petrol in or um, having to, you know, sync up all these cables into the yeah. right holes and what have you. It's just a bit effortless. It's park and go. Obviously, these take a while to charge, so you would be walking away from your car and leaving them there on top of this pad. Uh, they are using an electromagnetic field uh, to sort of trigger this transmission of electricity, which is very cool. Um and once one person has cracked it, we can expect to see these in other areas of the market because it'll set a new standard if people like yeah, the experience. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so that's kind of great. All right, look, it's 7.08 and I think we're going to forego any more news this evening because we really want to get to speaking to our first guest um, who's a data analyst. We've just been joined in studio by Gala Camacho. She is the head of analytics at Neighbourlytics. It all sounds very intriguing, Gala. What does a head of analytics actually do? <laughs> um, thanks for having me. I'm really excited to be it's here. It's great to have you here. Um, all right. So I do a lot of things because we're a really um, small startup. So at the moment, I have been working from anything into like, actually, let me go back. What does Neighbourlytics do? We yeah. like looking at social media data to try and learn more about a neighborhood. So what makes a neighborhood, what makes it thrive, what makes it strong and connected and a nice place to be in versus, um, you know, kind of a place you never want to go. And so that's kind of our focus. And our focus is basically to help people make neighborhoods better by hearing the voices of the people through social media. Oh, that's kind of amazing. It sounds like a very experience-led, like user experience-led business. It's definitely... um, cool to look at neighborhoods through the eye of social media it has its strengths its weaknesses but in particular it like tells us a lot of things that usually don't come out um in regular surveys or um you know you can kind of really nitpick a lot of like are are people posting pictures of the park it's like that's great the park is being used you know that's not always something we can tangibly measure so what sort of other 
data is out there compared to social media data and would you ever mash any of that up with what you get? Yeah, so um, we started about a year ago um, and my I've started there in December and my role is basically to look at all the data, any of the data, consider any new data um, and then kind of think about it in our business perspective. So how can we use it? Do we need to... Um, do something with it, like do we want to predict things? So other data, um, there's tons. Like if we think of green spaces, I mean, Melbourne, I believe, has a data set of all the trees. Yes, um, yeah, we do. You know, you can think about lots of different data sets that are made by the city of Melbourne. Um, I believe somewhere in Australia, recently a data set came out of all the different bike paths. Um, Sydney also has um, where all the trees are. And so there's definitely data sets out there and now that governments are really starting to make um, open source data I think we're going to see a lot of data that is unexpected that's going to shape kind of the way we now start thinking about neighborhood building. I hadn't heard that bike paths one I'll have to look that up again later because that could be really helpful. So we wanted to speak to you tonight because a lot of people we um, speak to don't know what a data analyst is. You know, what does this job mean? And they're always talking about, you know, jobs for the future and how they can get those jobs and, and, (laughs) you know, which ones would interest them. So we'd love to really unpack um, what it's meant for you having a career as a data analyst. So maybe, first of all, let's go back to your education. How did you prepare to be in this field? Yeah, so my background is in math. Um, My undergrad is in applied math and I have a master's also in mathematics. Um, I guess none of my background really led to me analyzing data, which is now what I do, but it definitely always was in scientific kind of areas, right? So a lot of my focus in my undergrad was in um, the aerospace field and in my master's it was in optimization. So I did... um, optimization and it's called operations research and basically what it is is kind of the math behind operations and logistics and to do all those things you basically have to look at a lot of data so that's something I always kind of did and I had in me Um, and I guess more recently in my own education I would say like my computer and the internet kind of education it's been a lot about well I have this data but like how do I even begin to look at it Mm. and um and coming, I used to be a high school teacher, and so one of the main things for me and that has driven my path in, into data analytics has been, okay, well, how do I present this data so that people understand the things I can understand um, and that they can also see and that they do not need to have necessarily like a super high level of mathematics or analysis or have seen all the numbers that I've seen? Um, how do I convey my message? And so that's kind of a really big kind of important thing that has led me into querying and thinking about what are the new skills I need to learn to kind of do this. And when you've been chatting with peers, have you come across many people who have had really different paths to being data analysts? Yeah, so um, I guess the the idea of a data analyst is it goes back a ways. There's kind of the thought of an internal data analyst, which is someone that looks inside the business, looks at data, and presents the data from inside the business to try and make better business decisions. And I think there's now this concept of the data scientist and what's the difference. And I think like everyone has opinions. For me, it's a really blurred line. 
I definitely know a data scientist that would be really strict, like a data scientist knows a lot more statistics. And like, there's definitely the data analyst that would be like, a data scientist is like really focused on this one thing. And I actually think it's all a bit blurry and fuzzy, like a data analyst can get into machine learning and into statistical analysis, just like a data scientist can learn to like visualize and represent things that's not necessarily in a machine learning kind of thing or a statistical analysis, but rather just like, hey, I have this data and before I start going super deep into it, maybe I visualize it and I kind of aggregate it in some intelligent way. It's funny you say that. I can't remember if it was XKCD or someone else who recently put out a, a cartoon that had almost a hierarchy of pro- programming languages and respect that you were given. Yeah, that's right. And right at one end, there was, you know, scripting and what have you, and then, you know, web front end, web back end, and then it moved through various, various <laughs> object-oriented, you know, programming <laughs> languages and ended up at machine learning and AI. And I thought, oh, I didn't know that. I hadn't actually conceptualised that there was... Um, amount of respect given for that and I thought oh all of this gatekeeping who's got time for it (laughs) (laughs) that's right fascinating to hear you 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 say that and and talk about that within your field as well a little bit Um, so when you look at problems I guess what really interests you about this you know because you started with maths but you found yourself going this way yeah what do you think was maybe the first thing that made you oh I really want to do more of this and double down yeah so um I guess there's been a bunch of experiences where I have found that if appropriate like data analytics had been done like a lot really better outcomes could have been reached. And so um, I used to work in civil infrastructure, and one of the things we saw is that um, I got to work with a lot of different utility companies, and they're also siloed. And really, like, do these companies need machine learning? A lot of them do, but first, they literally just need basic visualizations and numbers about their assets, about um, their operations costs there. And so this is kind of something that started kind of, oh, well, I wonder if I can answer this question. I wonder if I can answer this question. Um, What would happen if I looked at it this way? Like, do I see something? And I think it's very much a curiosity. um, And it's very much driven, like, the span of how much you can do is, like, both time and, like, effort, right? So, like, if I visualize it like this, it'd be amazing. But then I might have to, like, learn a ton of, like, JavaScript. It's like, am I going to do that? And, you know, that <laughs> well, might it's, not you know, be a right thing. down at the at the low barriers to entry level. So <laughs> maybe. <laughs> um, so I definitely think it's a balance, and I always, especially in, I, I guess, I've been a programmer for about, I don't know, four or five years, legitimately. I think like before that, I knew some stuff from my undergrad, but I wouldn't necessarily have just gone and started programming any time, which mm-hmm. now I can, and I do. Um, And, like, one of the things that's very clear is, like, I'm always thinking, if I knew how to do this, if I knew how to do this. And I think as you learn to do those things, the analyst inside of you realizes, like, oh, well, now I can look at the data this way and now I can do this thing. And I think that curiosity is what drives both your learning and your outcomes. And I don't necessarily think it's like that in, in all the different pathways you can take. But in analysis, that's definitely... It's kind of this, like, I'm going to learn a new thing, then I'm going to analyze a bunch of stuff, and then I'm going to learn a new thing, and kind of that balance of going back and forth, which is what something I really like. Yeah, what blows my mind about the way you're talking about data is that you can literally see 
the options opening up in front of you and the breadth of solutions that you might be able to bring to solving problems, expanding. And that's what we need in this world, yeah. of, you know, complex <laughs> problems, um, really being able to think creatively about these things. So what trends might you have observed within the field that you're in, you know, in the time that you're in, whether that's tools of trade yeah. or the demand in the workforce for, you know, where you can be applied to help solve problems? Yeah, well, um, you know, at, at the risk of making some people angry, like one of the things that data analysts, especially the internal ones, used to be very Excel-driven. And I think Excel, Excel is a great tool. Like, I think sometimes it gets totally just just blown out of proportion, like so much, it gets so much grief. But it's a really, like, my mom can open Excel and look at data, and that should not be taken lightly. Like, that is a very powerful tool, but it has its limitations. And although Excel has obviously managed to grow as a product, it's not the leading product anymore. And I think one of the things that definitely helped me was that I had programming behind me so I could do a lot more with a lot more data a lot faster I could automate it a lot more I could do testing so I could check for errors and I could this is kind of the way I think that analytics is going like if right now I had someone coming to tell me they want to be an analyst and they don't know how to do programming I think I'd be like you should reconsider or you should learn programming because being stuck in just using Excel is limiting. And so that's definitely a trend. Um, and another big trend, obviously, is this whole machine learning. Like, you cannot just turn your eye away from it. It's there. Um, some people choose to do that very directly. Like, that is the thing they want to do. They want to write models. They want to do this kind of, that's their pathway. I think there's people like me that are a bit more like, that's great if I can do that mm. or if I can manage someone who is doing that or work alongside someone who's doing that. But that's not necessarily like my only approach. I also really like this visualization and just straight up exploring the data is like really interesting to me. Do you feel like there's much time for discussions of um, data ethics and the, the decision making that comes out of the things you put together in your field? Yeah, so um, a lot of questions we get, especially because we work with social media, is like this whole privacy stuff. And so we have a really nice card, which is like, well, we're about places. So we're not out here to track where you went and what you said about the different places. I'm more interested in like, here's a place in the community. If I remove it from the community, like if tomorrow Triple R was gone, does the community <sighs> change? And like, I think the answer is yes, which means like, how do I see that? Will I see that through social media? I actually think the answer is yes, you will. Like, and, and I think that's an important thing. Like governments shouldn't just be ignoring that data. You know, just because it's not, you know, the Bureau of Statistics does not mean it's not very valuable. And it's especially because it's people driven. And so... Um, so yeah. privacy is definitely oh, a sorry, big privacy. ethical lens on yes. that, definitely. Uh, what about when people talk about the... The definition of problems, yeah, or the the limitations of the data set, yeah. Um, so do you think do you think about excluding you know people? Yeah. So I think about a lot a lot about privacy, literally not necessarily even for work, but just my own like, am I being tracked on my phone? Like these things matter to me. Like um, it didn't never used to matter to me, but now they do. And now that they do, I can't just let it go. Um, I think what does happen is when, when our clients look at um, 
our social media data, and then they go, well, who's been excluded? And the answer is that people been excluded is yes, absolutely. Like yeah. there are populate there are demographics that don't use social media, and they're not going to be excluded. But all that tells me is why are you looking for one source of data to give you all your answers? In my opinion, it's like you should be looking at all the different ones. Like mm. back in the day, they used to do surveys at the town hall, and like, did that exclude people? Yeah, of course, it excluded all of the young people who like didn't even know where the town hall was, <laughs> right? And so like, now we're tagging into that because they are like so like younger people are active on social media, and I think in the question that I return back to them is when you're looking at data sets and you are not asking yourself what is good and what is bad about this data set, then you're already doing yourself a disservice. All data sets have strengths and weaknesses. And if you have those up front, you're able to make much better decisions of how those are going to affect like the workflow and how those are going to affect kind of any derivative information you get from that data set. So we're in a really unique period of history where for us, a lot of these careers have emerged within our lifetimes. Even if they've kind of existed before, the shape of them is very much different now and being defined now. I wonder if you've got any advice for people who sound like they're, they're curious about hopping into this sort of field. Um, would you recommend doing the computer science course or do you think that coming in through a social sciences which have some sort of technical and analytical capabilities is fine as long as you learn coding at some point? Yeah. Um, I think that the strength comes in the strength comes in the mixture of skills that you have. So it's like if you if all you can do is programming you're not that valuable as an employee because I'm going to have to write a very, very direct thing for you to do. And like that's limiting for me as a manager and limiting for you in like the fact that there's nothing else you're going to get given for work. And so what I think is like find what you're passionate about, but because that's the most important bit, but find skills that you can add on to that that will make you a stronger person in that field. So would I tell people to come into data analytics? Absolutely, like it's a great field to be in. It's so needed. There's so many problems to be solved. It's like out of control. They're everywhere. Um, and what I would say is if what you like is very much the programming bit, then that's the part where you can become really strong at. But don't let like, oh, well, I don't need to know communication because I've decided I'm a programmer. Well, that's, that's absolutely incorrect. You need to learn how to communicate what you find. But just the other way, if like you're going about life with this attitude of like, well, I'm really bad at computers and at math, so I'm only going to do the communication. Well, like you're going to find yourself with a really tough world because like nowadays you can't really go about without any analytic skills. So it's more about finding the bit that you like and then adding skills to that. And if programming is one of those, which if you're going to be doing analytics, it probably should be. Um, then go for it. But don't necessarily think it has to be the only thing you can be good at. Gala, I love chatting with you about this. It's so great to hear your enthusiasm for the field. Thanks for sharing it with us. We've been speaking with Gala Camacho, who is Head of Analytics at Neighbourlytics. We've just had a bit of a shift around in studio and welcomed a couple of new faces. Uh, one is Maze Wallen. They're a composer, sound designer and audio programmer. And also their brother, Frankie. Welcome. Hi, it's great to have you both here. Um, now, Maze, 
you reached out because you've had the good fortune of checking out the new VR headset, the Samsung Odyssey. We yes. want to know all about it because I haven't even seen one in real life yet. What's oh, going on I with it? I brought one oh. because <laughs> they are so wonderfully portable. All right. And that's hot tip number one on the pros of why the Samsung Odyssey is excellent. So um, we had a little bit of confusion just a second ago. The Samsung Odyssey is not, in fact, a mobile phone. It is a (laughs) virtual reality headset. And so people might have heard of the um, Oculus Rift or the HTC Vive. The Samsung Odyssey is um, actually a Windows mixed reality headset. Um, And Microsoft is doing some really wonderful things in augmented reality as well as mixed reality. So it's really cool to see not only slightly cheaper than the Vive or Oculus, um, but also much more portable. So I'm having a really, really wonderful time with it. Is it a wireless headset? It's not wireless. I just wondered because so many headphones have gone that way now, but I know that we're in a much more early phase for the VR headsets. Yeah. Yeah. So the Vive Focus and the Oculus Go are their new little standalone headsets and they are wireless. The Vive Pro, um, which I don't think is quite out properly Mm -hmm. in Australia yet, is also got a big battery pack thing that you stick on your head to make it wireless. So (laughs) it's still a bit clunky. Yeah. Um, But I think the most awesome thing about the Samsung Odyssey isn't, and actually most other Windows mixed reality headsets is that they are still less wires. So they have this thing called inside out tracking. So on our higher end um, virtual reality headsets like the Vive and the Oculus, you have to set up cameras around your room so that they can track you walking around in the space. Yeah. And the ones I've experienced yeah. in big spaces, we you tend to have big tripods holding these cameras up in strategic locations. And And if you're renting, yes, you have those tripods. Yes. And God, it is And who's not renting? (laughs) Yep, exactly. (laughs) Um, So the Samsung Odyssey has little cameras on the front and um, it also comes with the Microsoft controllers, Mm -hmm. which uh, they basically look pretty similar to the Vive controllers. And if you have a PlayStation, there's sort of a, um, a... the PlayStation Move controllers, sort of like that, but with a much bigger end. Yeah, at the top. Yeah. Yes. And there's two of them. And yeah, yeah. two of them, exactly. Yeah. So it's really cool to be able to just do whatever you want with your hands all the time, unlike um, the standalones where you just have one controller. Mm. Even then, it's not so sensitive. Mm-hmm. Um, and the same thing so far with most mobile controllers as well is that there's, yeah, it's just one controller and it's not that sensitive. Mm. Yeah, but it's been awesome. And um, so, what about the speed? Usually, yep. the the latency can be an issue doing certain things. Yeah. So, as far as Windows Mixed Reality goes, there are a lot of different headsets from about the two hundred dollar range up to here, which is about nine hundred dollars. Mm-hmm. And because I just basically wanted to replace my Vive with this, I went for the much higher end. Um, And so what the Samsung Odyssey has is an AMOLED screen, which helps with that latency. So AMOLED, uh, Active Matrix, 
organic light something. Um, basically, that matrix part of it is getting the LEDs to light up a lot faster and your whites are brighter, your blacks are blacker. And I think even for people who haven't seen yeah. this particular gear, you would have seen hopefully the OLED TV stuff, the OLED mm, in yeah. your local TV shops. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So when those pixels are so close to your face, um, <laughs> literally strapped on your head, it's really nice to have them moving much faster and you seeing through them rather than looking at them. And when they're so close to you, you don't need to buy as many of them so it becomes a little <laughs> bit more affordable than those massive TVs that I cannot afford. Yeah, absolutely. Well, that's exciting. Yeah, and I guess like you still need quite a high-end computer um, but I've managed to fit it in a laptop that's under two kilos. That's so they're, amazing. they're getting really portable and really good. Yeah. yeah, this is what's exciting about these things. Yeah. So a real consumer question. Mm -hmm. What about the comfort of the headset itself? I oh. mean, they look slick, but yeah. is it comfortable? So this is the most comfortable headset that I've put on so far. It's really light. I think it's under a kilo. Yeah, yeah, it must be under a kilo, but I think the Vive is one of the heavier ones. It's still over a kilo. Mm. Um, so that's been awesome. They've also managed to figure out that elastic isn't a good headset thing, mm. like strapping something to your face isn't so good. Yeah, I've still got the Google Cardboard. Oh, and my gosh, not your a poor nose. <laughs> your nose must be killing you. Well, I'm yeah. half Asian, so I don't have as much <laughs> nose bridge as a lot of people I know, <laughs> which helps. But yeah. yeah, it's not comfortable. Yeah, so thankfully our noses aren't holding up our headsets anymore. Or they're actually just the rest of our head is holding <laughs> it up. They're really nice and cushioned. And the Odyssey actually comes with some AKG headphones attached, okay. which is what the Vive Pro is doing as well. And there, as a sound designer, the bass is a little bit woofy, um, <laughs> but otherwise they're pretty nice. Yeah. Right. Yeah. A few dogs in the base. Okay. <laughs> you would never say that as a sound designer. I don't know what I'm talking about. It's terrible, <laughs> terrible. Maze is laughing at me. This is bad. All right. We're going to back out of that. Um, <laughs> Maze, <laughs> are you planning to develop anything for the headset? Yes, always. Um, the Windows Mixed Reality has me really excited because it is so much more accessible price-wise for everything else. Um, and the Windows... Steam platform mm. actually helps to port a lot of games to Windows as well, just so that you can see if it works. It might need a little bit of polishing. Mm. Um, but yeah, I think the other week or the other month, I thought, how much would I pay to pretend to be on stage with Bjork? <laughs> and it's about 80 bucks. Like, yeah. I could probably go up to 120, maybe. Yeah. So that's my next project is being, is making virtual stages <gasps> to be with yes. bands and stuff. I loved yeah. this period where suddenly all of these um, people who were designing artistic 3D spaces and performance spaces mm -hmm. started getting hired by massive rock artists to design and stage their yeah. arenas. And it suddenly the arena shows went from, you know, lasers and smoke machines you know, with some projected video yeah. to these fully considered Huge 3D mechanical yeah, experiences. Yeah. And Björk is one of the best at this. Yes. Okay, I'm very excited. Yes. Um, was there anything interesting about the software development kit or like, you know, have you, oh. have you bothered to check it out yet? Stuff's or? just really accessible. Unity is super, 
There is so much that I can do just drag and drop mm-hmm. um, without having to do any code. That's that amazing. I can make prototypes really easily and then hire a programmer and an artist just to polish things. Wow. You know? Yeah. So you think the consumer appeal, they've, they've nailed it for this one in terms of like consumer level, like home consumer level makers? Yes, totally. It's just ridiculously accessible. The only thing is your your computer has to be quite good. Yeah. 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 What about um, the built-in tools? I know that when these things started appearing in mm-hmm. the consumer market, the tools didn't actually really have the language around usability yet. They didn't help people understand where um, stitching something would have an effect on the environment they created or what have you. Is the language evolving around that? Like, is there a usability conversation that, that has progressed somehow? Oh... That's a really interesting question. It's hard, yeah, it's hard to know. I think something that we're still fighting, or not fighting against, but still dealing with, is that often when we are showing someone a VR experience, it's their first VR experience. Yes. And so lots of things that we want to sort of get over, um, like, you know, people being shocked of, oh, there's all these things around me or, you know, trying to get someone to turn around just so that they're used to looking behind them and up and down, Mm -hmm. you know, actually look around. Um, That is something that as a creator can be quite frustrating. And I think the tools are sort of showing that as well of just like, ah... I don't want to keep doing this. When is everyone going to be in VR? Yeah. It's like when every website used to teach you how to scroll up and down the website and click here, click on this and arrows. Mm -hmm. I have a question. So along those lines, is there a particular game that you think is like great for beginners to kind of see, like someone like me that wouldn't use that regularly, Mm -hmm. but I'd be open to buying one. And so what kind of game can I play to like be convinced and tipped over, you know, that shows it's easy enough for me to pick up, but shows me enough the depth for me to be like, yeah, this is amazing and way beyond. Ah, okay. So there's two. Um, So I think VR is really sort of run through with something like Google's Tilt Brush. Um, and it's been really great to see artists using Tilt Brush as well. But the thing that has me really excited at the moment is a game called Beat Saber, where you have lightsabers and it's basically audio surf, but you hit all the objects with your lightsabers and it's excellent. Um, and they've sold something like 100,000 copies in their first month. And as a developer, that's like oh, shit, there's 100,000 people who own VR headsets and they're all buying this game, you know. <laughs> and they're desperate for new experiences. They're, they're waiting yeah. for new content. Yeah, and this is just like such a, a nice game that isn't about shooting um, uh, but still gets you really moving about. And I think that that's something that people were frustrated about VR is like, what's the point of me standing and waving my arms around if I can just (laughs) sit in a chair and rest my arms on my desk? Yeah. (laughs) And eat Cheetos at the same time, I think is the premise for some people. Yeah. And like, you know, usually I have Netflix and a game open, (laughs) but if you strap one of the screens to your face, you can now only have one screen. So, yeah. 
screen in screen. It's just a matter of time. Have you That's tried true. the zero latency experience? Yes, years and years and years ago. Yeah. Yes. Um, and I found that really fun. Okay. So for those who don't know, do you want to describe that to some people maybe? Okay. So it is huge warehouse scale VR. So what we're talking about is room scale. You can just walk around in your lounge room or your office or whatever. Um, the zero latency is warehouse scale. Uh, so far, they do not have inside-out tracking for warehouse scale, um, but that what they will have is like a hundred cameras um, strapped to the ceiling, looking down at heaps of participants. So you might have a team of ten going with your workmates. Um, you all pop on headsets, and you're given these big, solid, rubbery pieces of gun basically and um you get to shoot zombies running around this warehouse seeing everyone in vr with you yeah it's an updated version of laser tag yeah uh, but i'm fascinated by the use of technology because they use a really clever uh range of tricks to make the size of their warehouse feel a lot larger mm. so the real space is a certain size but the virtual space actually doubles back on itself and you end up covering all this ground and I think that for me conceptually was the most mind-blowing part of what they were doing I thought it was really sensational that we're developing new ways of making people experience things yeah which is just very cool how easy is it to get over the sensation that you're going to run into someone or something um, I think it's pretty instant in that, like, uh, in well, in zero latency, you can see everyone and everything, like, because there's virtual versions of them. But in your home, um, I've often worried about uh, someone stepping on a cable or something like that. But everyone seems to be very aware of the cable sort of brushing against their leg or something like that. Um, every now and then I've hit something quite hard as I'm trying to like beat Sabre something um, <laughs> but it's not it's not too hard and also I've been hit by people every now and then <laughs> but it's it's fine yeah it, I think like how immersive it is really helps you get over it and the haptic feedback in Beat Sabre is really part of that Right. With these lightsabers, you really feel like you're sort of gorging into something. Yeah. It's so cool. <laughs> Amazing. Hey, um, Frankie, you haven't had the chance to get a word in yet, but we wondered, have you got anything to say? Hi, Mum and Dad. Oh, Yay. Yay. Hi, Mum and Dad. Uh, thanks for listening tonight. <laughs> Maze, thanks so much for the review. We, we look forward to seeing uh, what creative experiences you come up with for the Samsung Odyssey and uh, indeed any of the virtual reality headsets. Uh, there was a little article on Pitchfork that caught my eye this week and I thought it was really interesting because I'm someone who doesn't stream a lot of music. Joe, are you big on the streaming services? I use them a lot, yeah. Mm. Like most people I know, I think it's maybe my setup at home isn't quite convenient enough yet. But also I've got so, I've put so much effort into curating my, my music collection uh, on my hard drive that, yeah, I, I don't do it that much. But uh, this article is about the effect of smart speakers on 
music consumption. Uh, so the sales of smart speakers in our home. So the sort of things where you've got a little speaker and you tell it to play something from your music or you ask it for the weather or what have you. I don't want to mention all the names. Um, but their sales have tripled between 2016 and 2017. And they expect about 60 million units will have been bought globally by the end of this year. That's a huge amount of uptake of, of a relatively new you know, type of product out there. And one of the people who they spoke to about this trend was Will Slatterly. Now, he's the global digital sales manager for Ninja Tune Records, which I think a lot of people would know, a lot of the amazing uh, predominantly electronic artists that they sign on that label, people including Bonobo. So what they were saying is that from their record company's point of view is that when people were interacting with smart speakers, um, there's it's a much shorter conversation it's not like they go into their collection and think I'm going to sort it by this time or you know this latest album that I got or what have you it's much more based on a feeling so it might be hey play some chill music or play some music during dinner and this is the sort of thing they're starting to observe. So they're saying the labels are starting to have to think differently about their music and not just um, sort of sort them by genres and what have you, but actually assign moods to their music and say this might be good for study. And they're looking at the playlists that get the most traction on the streaming platforms and some of them are really based thematically, in, instead of being themed on music or types of things, they're like, this is a fitness playlist and this is a study playlist and this is a, you know, working collaboratively playlist. I Isn't do, that amazing? I feel really judgmental <laughs> in, 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 about this because I feel like people who would choose something like this maybe aren't real music lovers. Maybe I'm more of a control freak when it comes to these things, but I feel that genre or mood-themed playlists don't actually match that mood when I think about music. Well, there's a few things there. One is that maybe they don't match it now, but they could match it better if record yeah. companies thought about it this way. And the other is that, yes, maybe you love music because you're interested in the stories as well as the artistic product, you know, the stories of the artists and, and you know, the context of the work that you're listening to, but... Maybe other people love music in a different way. In a way. different way, yeah. yeah. They just like to be surrounded by it constantly. And this was just a bit mind-blowing for me. So they also thought about market segmentation differently and that they will promote artists differently so that it might no longer be we want our artists to chart in Australia. It might be we want to own the fitness playlists. Isn't oh, that amazing? And we have a sound like designer in studio, so she's... I don't know, horrified? <laughs> You're horrified. I'm horrified. It sounds, it sounds truly like hell Anyway, to me. <laughs> you heard it here first, folks. It's, it's a really interesting article in Pitchfork. Um, it's called How Smart Speakers Are Changing the Way We Listen to Music. And I just thought it was right up the alley of our Byte slash Triple R listener. And uh, do go check it out and let us know what you think. We're on Twitter at Byte Into It if you'd like to share your opinions on that. There are a few events on at the moment. Um, Joe, what have, what have we got? I'm quite looking forward to the Avant Whatever Festival this weekend. Its opening night was tonight. You've missed the opening festival launch. But uh, the exhibition continues at the Alderman um, on Ligon Street until July the 8th. It's open 5 to 7pm Thursday and Friday and 3 to 7pm on Saturday and Sunday. And there are also 
a couple of performance nights at this very venue, Triple R's Performance Space. They are free, but you must book. You can book through avantwhatever.com. There are, there's a Friday night and a Saturday night performance between 7 and 10 p.m. And uh, a whole bunch of people are playing, including local Papaphilia and Dale Gorfinkel and just a whole bunch of really good stuff. Check it out, avantwhatever.com. And there's one other event I'd like to call out. Uh, on Thursday the 12th, so next Thursday, the Tech Inclusion Melbourne Meetup will be happening from 5.30pm. So a handy time for nine to fivers. It's a meetup to hear about new technology with inclusion at its core. It's also a place to learn ways we can make our workplaces and products more inclusive. The session will include a short talk in inclusive tech and an activity with Code for Australia. And the meetup's happening every second Thursday of the month. So if you don't catch the one next Thursday, you might be able to catch one in another month's time. It's at the Slack headquarters and you can find out about it at meetup.com, the Tech Inclusion Melbourne meetup. It's been lovely being with you this evening. We've had a wealth of guests. We spoke to Gala Camacho from Neighbourlytics about being a data analyst and to Maze Wallen, who is a composer and sound designer, um, amongst various other things. And we heard all about the Samsung Odyssey and we had Frankie in studio with us. We really appreciate the company, Frankie. You're dragging our um, age... Way <laughs> down. Way down, which is, you know desirable in here uh do st- <laughs> do stay tuned for the international pop underground of anthony crew up next this has been a podcast from three triple r 102.7 fm in melbourne truly independent community radio want to hear more check out our website at rrr.org.au